It was a day like any other. I had just finished watching an episode of Quantum Leap and was in the studio ready to talk about it when she walked in. The dame was loaded. She had legs that went all the way up and a face that could make a man give up his rent money just to spend a few minutes with her. She said her name was Heather and she was looking for someone. She wanted someone to talk to. Talk about the same episode of Quantum Leap I had just watched. I told her she could talk to me. I'm Albie, and I'm a podcaster. She agreed, and we sat down. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the Project Accelerator and vanished. In the blink of a cosmic clock, I went from quantum physicist to Air Force test pilot, which could have been fun if I knew how to fly. Fortunately, I had help. An observer from the project named Al. Unfortunately, Al's a hologram, so all he can lend is moral support. Anyway, here I am, bouncing around in time, putting things right that once went wrong. A sort of time-traveling Lone Ranger with Al as my tanto. And I don't even need a mask. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 8. Play it again, Seymour. It was 1953. The Dodgers were still in Brooklyn, and I was a private detective named Nick Allen. The dead man on the floor was my partner, Phil Grimsley. And if that wasn't enough to cause chills, there was the image in the mirror. Word on the street is he was fogged by a dropper called Clapper. Philip was your husband. And your partner. Yeah. And a man who can't with his partner's wife. Until his partner is gone. Sam, you know, Allison could be the killer. No. Did you love Phil? What kind of a question is that? The kind that has to be asked. He's right over here, Sam. Play it again, Sam. Hello, and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And this is our show all about the season one finale of Quantum Leap, played again Seymour. And in this episode, we have a great interview with the woman who played Allison in this episode of Quantum Leap. You may know her from Babylon 5 and many film roles, Claudia Christian. And not just an interview from a, a DVD clip or anything. You actually interviewed her. I called her on the phone. You called on her own phone. I was so nervous, but she was so awesome, and it went really well, and I learned a lot about Quantum Leap and about her life, and it's a great interview, and it's coming up later on in the show. That's so awesome. Heather, your first impressions. I like this one. I like most of them. They're all pretty good. But this one ranks up to the beginning couple episodes. I liked the storytelling, the, the mystery old detective story. I thought that was really cool. It was very noir-esque. Yeah, it was nice. I like Sam's expressions in this episode. Like when Seymour's talking or, you know, certain things, he just makes these faces that I liked in this episode. 
I like this episode a lot. I remember it as a kid, I remember liking it. I wasn't into like noir movies back then or detective stuff, but I remember liking this episode. And uh, now that I'm a grown up, I do like those old detective movies and it's nice to see this. You're a grown up? Uh, legally. <laughs> Maturity wise, I'm not sure yet. I used to love Who Framed Roger Rabbit when I was a kid just because it was like the detective. I don't know. I That was the only thing I was really exposed to like that. And uh, I really like this kind of story. I know like Next Gen had did the data card. I don't know what it's called, what the episodes are called. The Big Goodbye? Sure. Were you reading my show notes? No, no. I, <laughs> actually, no. I um, I just remember those episodes were really cool. This episode reminds me a lot of the Star Trek Next Generation episode, The Big Goodbye. Was it, that the one with Whoopi Goldberg in it, too? She's in one of them, too, isn't she? She's in one of the Dixon Hill ones, but not yeah. that one. But yeah, he has several Dixon Hill episodes in the holodeck. So this kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, I really, really like this kind of story. So, And I liked it in Next Gen, too. So that's probably why I like this episode. Uh, I actually looked it up because uh, I was wondering which came first. And of course... About the same time, right? Well, uh, this was still 1989 for Quantum Leap Season 1. Oh, so this one came first. No. Really? Yes. The Big Goodbye. The air date is January 11th, 1988. But pretty close. Pretty close. Within a year or so. But both good shows. So, of course, they'd both do a detective, 1950s detective stories. Can I just mention something about last episode... Of course. <laughs> it's called the Kamikaze Kid, right? Right. And uh, I kept wondering why every time I typed it into a document or searched for it online, it kept coming up with a red line underneath it. So I'd keep double checking the title and making sure that's how it was spelled, right? Because Kamikaze is spelled with a K. Right. I knew that, but I'm like, I couldn't figure it out. So listening to our podcast back, and you were mentioning Camshaft, I was like, oh, Kamikaze Kid. Oh, oh. I, I knew that because I w- wanted to know why it was spelled wrong. <laughs> But how slow am I? <laughs> yeah, but I, you probably didn't realize why it was spelled wrong. I mean, like you obviously didn't realize why it was spelled wrong. But I think I saw it, the episode spelled out in your show notes and I thought you spelled it wrong. <laughs> so then I looked it up and was like, oh, no, he spelled it right. It's just because his name is Cam. So I'm listening and I'm like, oh. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yes, I listen to our own podcast. I, I can't do it. I don't know. I, it's at least one of us can listen to it over and over and, and make sure we sound okay. Yeah. I just, you know, quality control. I'm not narcissistic or anything. No. Not at all. Not you. <laughs> uh, Heather, yes. the episode recap, please. Sure. This is season one, episode nine, Play It Again, Seymour. Original broadcast date, May 17th, 1989. Written by Tom Blomquist, Scott Shepard, and Donald P. Belisario. Directed by Aaron Libstad. As Sam leaps in, he is holding a gun and standing over the body of a dead man with a bullet in his back. The police burst into the room and place Sam under arrest. While he is taken to a prison cell, Sam discovers that he is a private detective named Nick Allen and that the dead man was his partner, Phil Grimsley. Looking in the mirror of his holding cell, Sam is astonished by the striking resemblance his counterpart shares with Humphrey Bogart. Al tells Sam that his mission is to most likely find Phil's murderer, which offers Sam relief as it means he is not the killer. Sam begins experiencing a feeling of deja vu and predicts that he will be set free as the bullet which killed Phil does not match his gun. Moments later, his prediction comes true as a detective enters the room to release Sam from prison. Al believes Sam's pronostication was a simple coincidence, but Sam doesn't think so. 
As Sam arrives at Gotham Towers, the apartment building where Nick lives, he continues to experience an inexplicable familiarity with his surroundings. Before meeting them, he is correctly able to identify three men standing around in the lobby. Lionel, the building supervisor, Chuck, the elevator operator, and Seymour, a nerdish boy who works at the newsstand and hero worships Nick. Both Lionel and Chuck offer condolences over Phil's death and ask about Phil's widow, Allison, for whom both men hold an attraction. Seymour tells them that he heard a dropper named Clapper was responsible for Phil's murder. He is confident that Sam will find the killer. Sam rides the elevator to his office, along with Chuck. Chuck asks him if he'll ask Allison on a date for him, but realizing his request was distasteful, quickly recants. Sam walks away, shaking his head in disgust. Before entering his office, Sam's sense of deja vu informs him that someone dangerous awaits for him. It is Allison, Phil's attractive bombshell of a widow. Allison throws herself into Sam's arms. She says that upon hearing the news that he was arrested, she was worried the police might have discovered the two of them were having an affair. Sam asks if she knows anybody named Clapper, and Allison responds that she heard Phil having a nightmare about him once. Though she is saddened by Phil's death, she is pleased that, with his passing, the two of them can finally be together. After Allison leaves, Sam begins searching through the office and finds an autobiographical manuscript Nick had been authoring. Sam now realizes that he has read the published book, thus explaining his deja vu and how he knows all of the people in Nick's life. Sam tells Al that according to the book, Nick and Allison were deeply in love but too loyal to Phil to act on their feelings. He believes that he must find Phil's killer so the two of them may live happily ever after. Unable to remember how Nick's book ended, he asks Al to locate a copy to help him find the killer. As Sam leaves his office, Seymour tells him a source has revealed that Clapper will be appearing at the Blue Island Club that night. Seymour eagerly wishes to join him on the hunt for the killer. As the two prepare to step into the elevator, the lift is absent and all that sits below is a long shaft. Sam clings to the cables and pulls himself away from certain death. He turns to see Seymour slumped unconscious against the wall, having fainted at the sign of danger. Lionel and Chuck investigate the faulty elevator. Chuck says that the safety latch was broken. However, Lionel says Chuck is to blame for not doing his job properly and monitoring the lift. Seymour apologizes for Sam's near-death experience and admits that he has always been a jinx. He was abandoned as a child and raised in an orphanage where he grew up mostly in a library. Seymour reveals that he wants to be a detective, just like Nick. When they arrive at the bottom of the stairs, Allison is waiting. She tells him they cannot go to the Blue Island, as that is where Phil went the night he was killed. Sam says he has to go in order to find the killer. Allison insists on coming with him. That night, the three of them go to the Blue Island. Seymour now says that his source reveals that Clapper may be a woman. As Sam goes to the bar to order drinks, Al produces the book that Sam has read. It is a murder mystery book, which was never completed by Nick as he was killed before publication. Al tells him that Nick was murdered at LaGuardia Airport that night and that after his death, Allison and Seymour were never seen again. Sam suggests that the murderer must have killed them and hid the bodies. However, Al believes that Allison killed Nick, fled with Seymour, and then murdered him too. Sam is angry that Al would suggest that Allison is the murderer, while Al accuses Sam of allowing his hormones to guide his thinking. Sam lashes out at Al, saying that he is the one who allows hormones and alcohol to cloud his judgment. Al is offended and uncomfortably leaves Sam behind, warning him to stay away from LaGuardia Airport. Since Clapper has not shown up at the Blue Island, Sam, Allison, and Seymour decide to leave. While Seymour races off to hail down a cab, a gunman emerges from the alleyway and begins firing at Sam. Sam dives for cover and escapes with only a graze to his cheek, while the gunman gives up and flees. When Seymour finally arrives with the cab, Sam blames him for taking so long to arrive. He also accuses Seymour of being a nerd and tells him to stop pestering him. 
They return to Gotham Towers where Sam goes off to get his gun, while Seymour flees from the cab, hurt and embarrassed by Sam's comments. When Sam returns to the lobby, he finds Seymour sobbing. Sam apologizes for his comments and claims to have made them to stop Seymour from coming with him to find Clapper. As the two return outside, they find the cab containing Allison is missing. Sam and Seymour catch a cab to LaGuardia Airport. Sam takes the opportunity to apologize to Al for offending him. He also admits that Al may have been right and that Allison may in fact be the killer. When they arrive at the airport, Sam tells Seymour they should split up. While Sam is mistaken for Humphrey Bogart by a young Woody Allen, Seymour is confronted by Lionel, who pulls a gun on him, and forces him into the airport hangar. Lionel has Allison tied up in one of the planes and soon chokes Seymour to unconsciousness. Al guides Sam to the plane while Lionel fires random ammunition in his direction. Lionel confesses that he killed Phil so he could be with Allison. When Lionel finally runs out of ammo and has to reload, Sam arrives and sticks a gun to his chest. Lionel is taken away by police while Sam comforts Allison. Allison figures they might as well use the tickets Lionel purchased to go away together. Sam tells Allison to board the plane and that he will join her. As he walks off, Seymour approaches him and admits that after nearly being killed by Lionel, he is no longer interested in becoming a detective. Sam suggests that he become a crime writer instead. Seymour keenly accepts the idea and walks off. Though Sam is eager to join Allison on the plane, Al reveals that Sam's mission was to help launch Seymour as a novelist, and that having done so, it is time to leap. Thank you once again. You're welcome. I have to say the first thing I noticed about watching this episode, Played Again Seymour, was the guest cast was pretty star-studded. Yeah, Seymour seemed a little familiar to me. A little familiar? Willie Garson. Who I did not know who that was until... Sex in the City? Yes. Stargate SG-1? I don't think I've watched Stargate yet, but I definitely know him from Sex in the City. He's like was in an episode of Voyager. He's in a lot of cool stuff. I think stuff. he's been in one episode of everything. He's one of those people that's been in one episode of CSI, Law and Order. Like he's done it all. Whenever I see his name come up in opening credits or something, I'm like, yay. Because it's just, I know it's going to be good. And uh, Claudia Christian was in this episode. Yes, I'm a big fan of hers from Babylon 5. She was a foxy lady. A femme fatale. Yeah, I, I like her outfits and, and all that in this episode. She was a flamer. She had red hair that could make a man cry. Flamer nowadays is a different term. Yeah, but back then I guess that meant <laughs> redhead. So I Now like, I think they call them gingers. It's a term of endearment as far as I know. I'm proud of my ginger daughter, so it's fine. But a uh, really good guest cast, so that really helped this episode for me. Love seeing Willie Garson. He's great in everything. Um, I loved his character. Yeah, it was great. Loved him. Like I felt bad for him in different places. and you But know, I love the way he spoke the whole episode like that. I couldn't hardly understand him half the time, but... Um, yeah, me neither. <laughs> which brings up a little thing, a little quiz I got for you. I'm going to ask you here and there uh, what things mean. I probably won't know. Fogged by a dropper named Clapper. Killed by a, a murder... A hitman named Clapper. All right. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. So you're, you're getting the lingo, right? Yeah. Well, we'll see. That one was, I think, a little bit easy. They get They get more difficult as we go. Probably. So Sam leaps in and he's standing over a dead guy. And he's just like, uh-oh. <laughs> with, with a gun in his hand. Right before Sam leaps in, I'm thinking Nick either what, like rushed in because he heard something and found Phil right after he died and tried to get the guy. Or he walked into his office, which this is probably what happened. Walked into his office, saw Phil on the ground, took his gun out to protect himself because he didn't know if someone else was in there. 
That makes a lot of sense. And the cops uh, come in right away. So I'm guessing that maybe somebody heard a gunshot and called the cops. Well, according to Lionel, the people don't like to hear gunshots around. Uh, That was probably a... So was it a hotel? So was that that his home? Was that his office or both? I didn't see a bed or a kitchen or I, I only saw his office. Unless his home was in that same building, but... The moment he saw Allison, Allison told Sam to take her to his apartment. So I'm assuming that wasn't his apartment because they were in his office. I know a lot of old school detectives usually slept on their office couch. Well, but that's not his house. He doesn't have all his clothes there and that's his true. everything. Back then you just had one suit and you just wore it every day until it walked away by itself. Until it was so stinky <laughs> that you just had no other choice but to wash it. Yeah. Ew. Sam thinks he's still in LA because they talk about the Dodgers. Of course, he's talking about the Brooklyn Dodgers because that's where they were before they moved to Los Angeles. And I know that from some sci-fi show I'm thinking because I couldn't know it from knowing anything about baseball. The only other thing I know about baseball is uh, the London Kings win the World Series eventually. Well, Jackie Robinson, I believe, was on the Brooklyn Dodgers. So that's how I know about them. They got no pitchers. What? I have no idea what I'm talking about. I have no idea about sports. Do you don't know who Jackie Robinson is? Yes, I do. But I mean, like, I don't know anything about sports either don't get me wrong but i just know about history and i was trying to figure out why i know that name of the brooklyn dodgers and it's because jackie robinson was on the team one of the few historical baseball players that i actually have heard of before my best guess is on an episode of sliders they never moved to la i don't know i have no idea well they moved to la right after well no a few years after this episode okay 1957 so sam looks like humphrey bogart yeah, a little bit. Well, no, Sam doesn't. Nick does. Right, Nick. The Leapy, he's played by Tony Heller. I looked him up. He's only been in two things. Do you think maybe it's because he looked too much like Humphrey Bogart? Possibly. Might might be typecast yeah, a little like, bit. We would rather have Humphrey Bogart than you. Makes you wonder if they wrote this episode and then they said, find us a Humphrey Bogart lookalike, or they found this guy and they said, write an episode about a Humphrey Bogart lookalike. They might have had the episode and then found him and then wrote the Humphrey Bogart part in. Ah, a third option. I like that. So it was funny that people kept thinking it was him, uh, the old lady that thought it was Humphrey Bogart, and then he's like, no, he's somewhere else with someone else, and he gets hit with a purse. That was funny. Yeah, he was recording Sabrina, the right. tape, or filming Why Sabrina. would the old lady hit him? Maybe she thought he was being a smartass. Oh, mm-hmm. maybe. No, like, no, that's not me. So then she hits him. Whether or not it was Humphrey Bogart, she shouldn't be hitting anybody with her purse. Right. We talked about that in the last episode. Right. Abuse is bad. <laughs> Even if it's from an old lady hitting yes. you with her purse. And uh, we're still calling her an old lady because we haven't gotten to the ageism episode yet. Oh, is that like a discriminatory thing? I have no idea. We'll find out then. So what do you think about Sam having all those premonitions and psychic uh, flashes of the future? I almost thought that he was like leaped into a movie. Like that Twilight Zone episode where it's his real life, but it's a movie. I don't even know. Wow, good know reference. It. Yeah, I love that episode. Do I get my nerd cred for this episode? A little Yay. bit, a little bit. <laughs> and then he has to, everybody's telling him he's an actor, and he's like, no, it's my real life. And he has to get back on the set, and then it turns back into his real life. Yeah. That was a good one. When he tries to pick up the phone and call someone, and it's a prop. Yeah, for more on that episode, check out the Twilight Zone podcast. I like that one. Yeah. Did you think he was having like psychic flashes other than the uh, whole in a movie thing? No, I really just thought I because I, he recognized people. I didn't think it was a psychic thing at all. I thought because it's still in season one, there's not technically any rules yet as to what or who he leaps into. 
Like, that would be really cool if he leaped into a movie. The only rule I know thus far is that he leaps within his own lifetime. Right. But I just, I don't know why I thought that, but. One of my thoughts early on was that he might have been there as a kid, kind of like 12 Monkeys. Oh, yeah, that that makes sense, too. I uh, Well, I wasn't that far off with my movie guess, considering it was a book. Pretty close. Hey, and a movie might be made out of the book one day. You never know. Very true. Very true. Um, That would have been even funnier if it was like a autobiographical book turned into a movie that he had seen. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I wasn't really sure what was going on. But we find out pretty soon into the episode, so I wasn't misled for too long. Yeah, like the first quarter of the episode, we find out. But I had just assumed that he forgot the ending. I didn't expect Al to come back and say it was a murder mystery novel. And you had to come up with your own ending. I never heard of those kind of books. I've heard of like cliffhanger books before where they just kind of don't tell you the answer at the end. Very frustrating novels. But I mean, that's cool that they had like a contest. I wonder if anybody ever won in that original timeline. They would have to have solved the mystery and it was never solved. So, Oh, I guess not. Which begs the question... If Sam solves this, does that book ever get published? And if it did, then Sam read it and would know the ending. And if it didn't get published, then Sam wouldn't be having all these premonitions or deja vu. So what happened? I don't think we can do butterfly effect on Quantum Leap. It's time travel. It reminds me of that Doctor Who episode where they write a book and uh, every time they read a page, something happens. Remember yeah. with Amy and Rory and the Doctor? and Yes, I do. So it's it's similar to that, but a lot of stuff wasn't happening like as he was remembering it. Well, what I'm saying is one of two things happened. Either the book got published with an ending because it has an ending now and he read the ending or the book never got published because there was no point because there was no mystery. But I don't think Sam in his current time traveling state, I don't think his timeline changes. Okay, so the memories don't flash into his head all of a sudden? No. When a change occurs? No. I, I think that it may affect the future slightly, but I don't think it affects Sam in his time traveling state. Okay. So for some reason, Sam and maybe Al are exempt from the changes in the timeline? Each time travel movie slash TV show slash novel, any of that kind of thing has their own rules to a certain degree. So what rule did they establish with this? None technically i don't think that they've really established many rules other than the fact that what sam does doesn't affect him because say he fixed his ex remember in that episode where he saw his ex-girlfriend and fixed her daddy issues donna elise right if he fixed her daddy issues and they got married and lived happily ever after he might have never done the quantum leap project right or he might not have leaped as early as he did or, or something like that so i don't think there's many rules so far in season one, but it doesn't seem to be affecting him directly. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm looking back to how the test was won and the whole Buddy Holly thing. Yeah. The only reason they realized he was Buddy Holly is because he was singing a song very similar to Peggy Sue, which means Sam and Al already knew about Buddy Holly. Right. But if Sam wasn't there to tell him to say Peggy Sue and not Piggy Suey, would there have been a Buddy Holly? I don't know. I I see what you're saying. I think that we're talking about two different points, and we're both right. You're saying that Sam has to be there to make Buddy Holly appear. I'm saying that it might affect the future, but it doesn't affect Sam. Like, you were talking about his memories of the book affecting his... Well, okay, so what you're saying is alternate timelines when it comes to time travel, which means 
when Sam goes back to his present time, if he ever does, then he'll be in an alternate timeline from his original timeline to where the book was either published with an ending or not published at all. But he is still from his original timeline, so he has the memories from that. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Thank you. No, thank you for summarizing my <laughs> crazy thoughts. I, I got what you were trying to say. I just couldn't... Summarize. I recognize that building right away. I have no idea what building that is. To me, I was like, that's the building from Blade Runner. That's why I don't know what it is. I've never seen oh. that before. Uh, I did a little research on it. It's called the Bradbury Building, and it's been in a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, like I mentioned, Blade Runner. It's been in the Outer Limits episode, Demon with a Glass Hand, which was black and white and might not have recognized it as much because the, the colorscape is really good. It was in the Jack Nicholson movie, Wolf. Uh, it was, of course, in this episode of Quantum Leap. It was in Pushing Daisies. It was in a Star Trek book called The Case of the Colonist Corpse. It uh, follows a lawyer from the original episode of Star Trek. It was in the 1960s Mission Impossible. And it's been in various books, comic books, movies, TV shows over the years. It just has a very unique look. I think it's the uh, exposed elevator and it's all like wrought iron. So it's an actual like functioning building or is it part of set? It's a building. You can go there. Hmm. Yeah. If I'm ever in LA, I might go there. One of the first things I liked about Willie Garson's character, the title role of Seymour, was uh, when he drops his glasses and Chuck and Lionel are making fun of him and taking bets on how long it'll take for him to get his glass back in his frames and stuff. And uh, Sam, not Nick, because Nick normally wouldn't help Seymour, but Sam helped Seymour get his glasses put back together. Yeah, Nick obviously wasn't very nice to Seymour. Guys back then, they were like macho and not as nice. Sam is a very nice guy, and he's going to help somebody if they need help. That's his whole mission in life is to help people, so he's not going to let Seymour suffer. Yeah, and then when he drops it later on and... and it was after Sam insulted him and Sam turns around because he even after their little fight, Sam still would help him. That was a good setup and callback in that episode. And it really, without that incident, I don't think the story could have played out that way. I'm glad they make glasses frames better now. <laughs> well, those lenses were pretty bad. I don't know if you noticed, but there are window glasses, which are just like plain glass. There's no corrective lenses in there. Yeah, because when you see someone with corrective lenses, their eyes are distorted on the other side of the glass. Right, and you can just tell the curvature and stuff. But when the light hits the frames, then they're exactly flat. So they're just stage prop glasses. Yeah, well, like I said, because they distort your eyes, so they probably didn't want it to look weird. It's not for people like you who notice things. <laughs> Seymour was picked on, I would think. Oh, definitely. Treated treated pretty bad. So it's, it's nice that uh, his idol, Nick that he looked up to a lot and started helping him out. And now he's going to be a writer, which is awesome because the way he spoke was just like a, a novel. Speaking of, we have uh, some more references. Do we? Okay. What does it mean, hard Harry's? Yeah, I don't know what hard Harry's are. You stumped me on the second one. Hard Harry's. I'm thinking tough guys. Oh, okay. I just kept thinking hard hats, but I know that that's not what it is. <laughs> do you have a YMCA video in your head? I do now. <laughs> It's like a pink elephant. You can't not think about it. Think, try not to think about a YMCA video. Yeah, no. And now I'm thinking of a pink elephant in a YMCA video. Whoa. So I mentioned earlier about Sam's facial expressions. I think my favorite part of his facial expressions was the moment when Chuck asked him if he could go on a date with Allison. And Sam just looked at him like, what? Are you crazy? What is wrong with you? He was, Chuck was like to take her mind off of Phil dying. Well, it's funny though, is he makes those faces 
And then he walks into his office and Allison jumps into his arms. Right. They can finally be together. He had no idea before that moment that him and Allison were together. Neither did Chuck. Yeah, obviously not. So it was a well-kept secret. Yeah, they, but they did, they weren't doing anything. Right. They just had a longing for each other. An open longing, which is a crazy. I mean, it's good that they were loyal, but it definitely shows motive on her part and his part. I like where Allison said, you know, we sleep in separate beds, right? Yeah, like trying to defend her marriage to Nick. That's funny, though. But now they can be together because Phil's dead. Which brings up the point that uh, most of this episode, every time I watch it, I think Allison is the killer. Yeah, and then when the main part that I thought, I was kind of skeptical. And then when they're in Blue Island and she looks at Seymour when he says that Clapper might be a woman, she was like, oh, no, you caught me. Did she make a look? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't see the look. I was looking for a look. She looked, She had a scared look on her face. Ah. Mm-hmm. Kind of like you're not guilty, but everybody thinks you're guilty, so you kind of look guilty. Well, I think she might have been scared just because she might have been killed. But even when they were dancing on the dance floor, she realized she said something that sounded like she was guilty. Like, at least I didn't have to go through a messy divorce. So <laughs> I didn't mean it like that, Nick. Yeah. Again, I think Claudia Christian played this character really good. I think she was supposed to play it like she was guilty. So we thought she was guilty. And uh, Allison kisses Nick, which was a pretty hot kiss. Uh, I don't know if it was uh, the set, the music, or the kiss, or all of the above, but it was pretty hot. And uh, I didn't notice until the second time I watched the episode where uh, she was taking his keys out of his jacket. To go to his apartment. So there you go. We answered her own question. What? She needed the keys to go to his apartment so he doesn't live in his office in that building. Right. Was that their first kiss? That was Allison's first kiss with Sam, I know, because Sam looked up and said, thank you. So it must have been a great kiss. Yeah, he likes this uh, this leaping experience, I guess. He's getting into it. But he was really stressed, too. So it was... Well, he was trying to not get killed. Right. And more importantly, not get Nick killed. Does he die if the leap... I don't know. Is it leaper? He... We don't know yet. Hmm. I would say if you don't know, you have to assume yes. Right. I would. Do... Let's not risk it when it comes to right. death. <laughs> you don't want to pull a Groundhog's Day and be driving off cliffs and stuff. Yeah. One little weird continuity error. One little continuity error I saw while Sam was sitting at his desk and reading the book that he had read that his leapy Nick wrote, there was uh, smoke coming into frame a lot and uh, Al was there, but Al wasn't there yet. Don't think Al was the culprit of the smoke. You think it was like the camera guy, the guy pulling focus was smoking? No, 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 no. I think that there was probably a scene, uh, this still makes it a continuity error, but I'm pretty sure they cut out a scene where Nick lit a cigarette because if he, when you watch, he opens his drawer and he has two packs of cigarettes, which I'm pretty sure were camel non-filters. Yeah, that's what they look like to me too. <laughs> Weird that I know that because I'm not a smoker, but neither are you. So you know that too. He pulls open his drawer to look in his drawer and there's two packs of cigarettes there. So I'm thinking they cut out a scene because it looks like it's sitting in an ashtray on his desk. Smoke is coming out. That was my assumption. That's what it looked like, but you never saw the cigarette in any of the following scenes. But then they go to commercial, and when we come back from commercial, Al swooshes into the room, and he's behind Sam, and there's more smoke. Maybe in uh, they missed a scene, or maybe it was just Dean Stockwell standing off camera getting ready for his part. I Yeah, that could be it. I'm... Maybe just because it was the 50s, there was just smoke everywhere. Yeah, I know that everybody smoked everywhere all the time in the 50s. It was not bad for you then. Or nobody knew it was bad for you. Sam seemed more merged with his leapy, like Swiss cheese, more than usual to me. He kept saying, me and Allison, Allison and I. And Al had to keep correcting him, saying, no, Nick. 
Well, I think he fell for Peg, too, in the first few episodes. For the record, we all did. Well, yeah, but I mean, he admitted in his inner monologue that he always found pregnant women attractive and and all that stuff. And so it's not impossible that he has feelings for her. And he even, you can tell by his reaction to her kiss that he was head over heels for her. I mean, right as soon as he met her. But I think he's been alone for a while. I mean, he's been doing all this stuff for everybody else and he hasn't really done anything for himself. So he just was self-indulging and going along for the ride i think on this one sure i'll fall in love with this girl and 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 kiss her and dance with her and and pretend we're in love for as long as i got i would yeah and and it was really cute the whole scene with them finally getting to be together in the office and everything this is when al starts um trying to convince sam that allison is the killer allison is the clapper yeah that was the only thing that to me was weird because I feel like if she was the killer, I don't think Al would have been right. I know that he has in the past been right about everything, but I don't think from the whole beginning of the episode, they would have been telling you the killer. Looking back, it seems like silly for me to even think that it was her because Al was saying it's her the whole time. But she was definitely the red herring. Oh, yeah. With the red hair. Mm -hmm. That's why they do that. Yep. It also brought up a funny line in the episode. One of the things I laughed out loud at where uh, Al says, careful, there's no cure for that in 1953 how talking about clapper yeah so i laughed yeah that's funny and i would know i'm sure it's funny because it's a family show but they they have those hidden jokes in there yeah like if you know you know if you don't know you're like hmm, i don't know every time i hear that i just think of the clap on clap off the clapper yeah the i wasn't commercial. thinking that i was thinking the disease no 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 i mean <laughs> not during the show but now every time we say clapper in this in in our show i keep thinking the commercial It's like, clap on, clap off, the clapper. So Sam's mission, as far as we know, is to find Phil's killer. Yeah, but there's no way. That's the big mission. Okay. And then once that's over, it's a little mission with Seymour. There's multiple missions. So far, in the 85% of the first season, I don't know. I don't know how how many episodes so far there's been the little mission, but... Well, no, I guess not, because in the first episode, it was for him not to not die and for him to save the baby. That's not really a small mission, but right. those are two missions there. I don't know, has there always been really two, and we just didn't notice as much until the end? One thing that really confused me, Sam and Seymour are walking out of his office. They're going into the elevator. Sam steps into an elevator shaft, and there's no elevator there. And then all of a sudden, they cut to this other guy hanging from an elevator-like cable for a while. <laughs> and then they cut back to Sam like getting back onto the floor out of the elevator shaft. Like, What was that about? Bad body double. Was it? Stuntman? Yeah. I just thought it was like, that's weird. Another guy fell down another elevator shaft wearing the same clothes. <laughs> First of all, who gets into an elevator in the 1950s without looking to see if there's an elevator there? I look now. No, I just, I think I always look forward when I'm walking through doorways, downstairs, into elevators, <laughs> onto escalators. Those things, you just kind of want to look ahead to make sure that they're... There's a floor. You pay attention. Right. Now, if he was texting and walking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the latch was broken, but he made it. He's safe. But somebody tried to kill him. Right then, I thought it might be Seymour. Well, when Seymour was gone, it's like, where did he go? And then I realized he fainted. <laughs> that was funny. And uh, he had his tongue sticking out. Uh, yeah. After Sam's okay, and uh, Nick and Seymour are walking down the stairs, Allison shows up. So if... 
like me, I was thinking that, wow, it could be Allison. She could be Clapper because she was there when the elevator broke. I thought that that was a coincidence because I was convinced that Allison was the killer. But I think Allison's motive to kill Phil was to be with Nick slash Sam. So once we found out that Allison supposedly took off with Seymour and killed Phil and Nick, that theory was just way too crazy for me. You know, I, that didn't enter my head. I just still thought it was her. No, I I knew that she really loved him. But when the cab took off and she said, "You why'd you take so long or you're finally here or something... I was like, oh, that was all an act. Like, she, the- Yeah, I was like, oh, she's in on it. I knew it. Yeah. But apparently she just assumed it was Nick. Red when herring. She was it. So they go to Blue Island. That was a very um, Casablanca-esque scene on purpose. Yeah. But I guess if you're going to look like Humphrey Bogart, you might as well dress like him too. Yeah. And that was funny that when he was carrying the drinks, they <laughs> put the spotlight on him. and They started playing uh, the song from Casablanca. So obviously everyone thinks he's Humphrey Bogart or at least... <laughs> His doppelganger. So as time goes by, plays. And uh, I like that Al was conducting the orchestra because he can do anything he wants because nobody can see him but Sam. Al finds the book, Who Killed Grimsley and Alan. Yeah, that's not good. (laughs) No, because his name's Nick Allen. He's like, what? So then he starts really stressing out. Yeah, we thought this was just going to be about finding Phil's killer. Turns out Nick's life is on the line too. So then it becomes really important to figure out who Clapper is. Now, point on Clapper. We don't ever see Clapper. We don't ever find out who the source was that said Clapper was a woman. Yeah, where did the source come from? How did he find that out? Lionel, maybe? Word on the street. Ah, word on the street. Yeah, he might have heard it from Lionel. But like there was never any Clapper person. Like It was just like a a myth. Yeah, a made up persona. It's just very weird. Because I was assuming they were going to find Clapper and try and accuse Clapper. And he'd be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It was odd that Sam jumped Al's stuff. Sam is very passionate in this episode. He falls hard for Allison and he's ready to go on a plane and run away with her. And at the same time, he gets really angry, which is out of character for him because he snaps at Seymour and Al. He's not usually like that. No. So I think a lot of Nick's personality got Swiss cheese into Sam. That's my guess. That makes sense. And it's also a stressful episode. I mean, it's not as serious of an issue as domestic violence and, and the racism, the serious issues, but... This episode, he's running from bullets and trying to figure out who's going to kill him before he gets killed. And anybody around him could be the killer at any right. moment. Because honestly, he doesn't really know these people. He's just read about them. Right. And he just kind of got thrown into the middle of his own murder investigation. <laughs> the one reason I knew that Allison and Nick wouldn't be able to get together at the end is... Why? Because if they got married, Allison's name would be Allison Allen. That would be weird. I just know that Nick can't have a happily ever after at the season one finale. After the Blue Island, uh, they have that moment out front and they kiss again. Another hot kiss. She says, I think the only man I ever loved was you. Aww. Then Nick gets creased. Did you think it was Seymour at that time? Totally. I'm yeah, like, me too. It's Seymour and Allison. They're in cahoots. Why don't they just get it over with and kill Nick already? When I go back and watch it, though, the person clearly has like a hat and raincoat on, which Seymour didn't have. But yeah, when Seymour showed up after the fact, it's like, yeah, that might be a possibility. (laughs) Okay, more lingo from back then. Sucking kelp. Drowning? I'm thinking. Thrown in the ocean. You know, dead body. A Roscoe. No idea. I think that's a gun. Oh, yeah. Okay. See, the out of context is hard. Right. Actually, in context. It's hard. <laughs> so out of context, it's even worse. Daisy crushers. 
I think those are shoes. Yeah. Right? You step on daisies. Yeah, exactly. After Nick gets shot at, they're in the cab and they're going to Gotham Towers. And uh, Sam's in the car with Allison and Seymour. And, he, you know, Seymour's going on and on about daisy crushers. And Sam loses his temper again and says, nobody can be that nerdy. And they both at the same time, um, Allison and Seymour go, nerdy? Nerdy? And I just love that part. He does bring vocabulary from the future into the past. That's the second time he's introduced nerdy because in the pilot episode, he was talking to Peg on the drive home and he said a nerd and she's like, what's a nerd? (laughs) So maybe nerd was a big word back then in 89. Yeah, but it's part of vocabulary. Like I just used it as nerd cred and and all that stuff. So that's true. It's a different meaning now. Kind uh, Well, not too different. It's just evolved, I think. But uh, he also uses main squeeze. And I like that Al's like, trying to figure out how that gets from here to there when sam's yelling at seymour he says you're not going to be like this guy you're not going to be like that guy and you're not going to be like thomas magnum which i thought was funny because of course you know magnum pi didn't exist yet and also it's one of don p belisario's other television shows but there's about i think three or four references to magnum pi throughout the series so that's one of them so then uh they go to gotham towers and sam's trying to get rid of seymour so seymour doesn't get hurt or in the way he could have just left him to fiddle with his glasses That's because true. it took 12 minutes. <laughs> Which was established earlier. But he's not that kind of guy. No. But he tells him to go get his raincoat. Hoping that. But his cap was gone. Right. Which makes up for a good moment where after, you know, Seymour's hopes and dreams are crushed and he feels really bad because the guy he idolizes like tears him down. That's got to suck. But do you really think that Sam did it so he wouldn't get hurt? Or do you think Sam was just angry and assumed that Seymour was shooting at him? No, because he said, I thought it was you until I realized when I got in the cab that you were dry and the guy shooting at us in the alley was soaking wet. See, I thought he said those things in a fit of rage and then apologized and made an excuse. Oh, see, we saw the same thing from different perspectives. I I like when Seymour goes, yeah, it could have been me, but it wasn't. But he like was excited like, yeah, it could have been me. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. He's such an awesome character. He's really good. He's very innocent. Just great character, like as characters go so far in Quantum Leap. Really good. We will see the actor again in two more episodes of Quantum Leap. It's weird when they do that, when they bring the same actor back in. As a totally different character in season five, episode one and two. Scott Bakula is good with a Zippo. Yeah, that was a smooth move he did there. Right. It's not up there with uh, sliding across the hood of the car, but uh, it's pretty close. So did you like that Sam gets all the quotes wrong throughout the whole episode? <laughs> yeah, he thought it was, uh, he was quoting like Jimmy Cagney and uh, Edward G. Robinson. It was pretty funny. Yeah, and he kept looking at Al like, shh, let me have my moment. <laughs> yeah, because he was probably quoting him for the most part before they actually said it. So it could have been him. Yeah. When he has the gun up to Lionel's chest and he says the Edward G. Robinson quote, and he just looks at Al like so annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> So what do you think about Al's fashion this episode? There wasn't anything really outrageous. No, I think this episode wasn't really about him. Usually he's really into helping and he wasn't right this time. So I guess it was kind of not as focused on him. He wasn't as flashy involved in the episode as he normally is. Pretty much normal clothes. He had some kind of weird buttons on his shirt, you know, nothing special. Some military metal looking things on his white outfit. Have to say, though, his white, white, white outfit did not look good with the CG at night. Yeah, the effects weren't so good there. Um, They do get better. Trust me. That's usually how CGI works and all that stuff. So they're at LaGuardia, where they know not to go because that's where Nick dies. Why would Sam not drive the other way and go to the other hospital? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, wrong episode. 
Um, because he has to find the killer. That's true. And Allison is with the killer. Oh, so you got to go save Allison if Allison's not the killer. Right. But if Allison's a killer and she goes to LaGuardia, then you just go, oh, that's cool. Unless she comes back to kill you. So Sam was convinced Allison wasn't the killer then. I think that he believed it could be a possibility that she was because Al asked Sam if he would use the gun on her if he had to. And he said no. But he wasn't stuck on the fact that she wasn't the killer. Like he left it open. Like he could be wrong. Woody Allen was in Quantum Leap. That's pretty cool. A young Woody Allen. There's usually a famous person in every episode, right? Michael Jackson, Buddy Holly. Seems to be. Uh, I thought it was pretty cool because he was saying, uh, tell me how to get Annie up to my room and uh, bananas. So Annie Hall, bananas. Different references, which I thought was funny. I totally didn't get that until you told me. You'd probably have to be a big Woody Allen fan to get it. I mean, I like Woody Allen stuff, but I probably have seen a couple of his movies only once. So then we finally find out that the clapper is, in fact... Is he the clapper? Is Lionel the clapper? Or is he just the killer? Because there could still be a dropper named clapper somewhere else. I don't believe so. I believe Lionel is the dropper named clapper. Hmm. Totally didn't. I didn't think that. I just thought that they blamed it on the dropper named clapper. The whole time, I never thought, you know what? The hotel manager is the assassin. That never crossed my mind once. Me neither. I don't think they dropped any hints that it could be him. Because even upon rewatching it over and over again, there is nothing to suggest that it might be him. Except when he says that the tenants don't like to hear shooting. You know, like he says the tenants don't like shooting around here. Which to me, watching it the second time, it's like, hey, maybe that's because he shot someone and (laughs) someone called the cops on him. (laughs) Normally people like that, but not around here. Generally, in this neighborhood, these people don't prefer gunshots. But then when they're in the plane and he's yelling at Sam that Allison and I just want to go away and be in love and peace and stuff like that, I'm still thinking that Allison's in on it. Even though she's tied up? Well, that's when the camera pans from left to right and we actually see Allison tied up. Then I'm like, oh, maybe she's not in on it. Yeah, I I was the same way. It's like, really? She picked Lionel? I had no idea until right at that moment. Yeah, he was delusional. He was a wackadoodle. He, <laughs> yeah, that too. Sam's like, Al, get down. He's like, why? I'm a hologram. He, can, he can't <laughs> see me or shoot me. That's true. But it's funny that he reminds Sam that every episode. I guess it's hard to think that someone you're, you see, nobody else sees. Well, also for a practical reason, remember this is television in 1989. There's not TiVos. There's not internet. There's not iTunes. People might tune in to episode nine for their first episode. And since you can't go back and start at the beginning, like everybody seems to do now, I do. Like if I see a show on that sounds cool, I'll go and start from the beginning. But back then you couldn't. You just had to start from where they were. So they have to keep re-mentioning the rules over and over again. I forgot there was a time like that. It was a rough time back then. There was many struggles. We had to record things on VHS. We had to sit and program a VCR to do it. Even when I had a TiVo in the beginning of TiVos, Way back in the beginning of TiVo. That was like 10 years ago. Okay, never mind. Right, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, still, that's like half my lit. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) And anyway, um, but the whole having access to shows online is pretty new. So even when I first had my TiVo, I think I watched an episode of Grey's Anatomy, the bomb episode. That's all I remember because I saw commercials for it all week long, recorded it on my TiVo and I had to go back just a few years ago and, and rewatch those first episodes because I never saw them. So 
even after I had my TiVo, I... So pre-Netflix and stuff like that, it was hard to catch up. That validates my point. If somebody's tuning into Quantum Leap for the first time on episode nine and uh, doesn't know that Al's a hologram from him stepping out of the cab oddly, then Al reiterating that nobody can see or hurt him. Yeah, there's also... That's probably why there's a very long opening. Yeah, the saga cell. I don't believe that's a word. <laughs> um, Still on episode eight of our show, I don't believe that that's a word. Oh, ew. Okay, gross moment of the episode. Al mentions that Lionel has a stinky, dirty mustache. Ew. Like, can you smell your own mustache? How does that work? You would think you would. I don't agree with mustaches as a rule because I think you already have two eyebrows. Who needs three eyebrows? (laughs) I don't like the whole scratchy face thing. I don't like that. There's only two exceptions to the third eyebrow rule. And one would be if you have a, you know, cleft palate and and uh, the other one would be if you're Tom Selleck. And it's November. November is the month of growing mustaches. Didn't you know that? No, I did not. Really? Really? There, mustaches are everywhere. I think it's called Movember right now. I honestly don't know the backstory on that, but it is mustache month where everybody like grows their mustache for the month of November. Claudia Christian does a great job not seeing Al. I didn't even notice, so obviously she did good. Right. Well, when Al walks in the shot, she can see him, but you have no indication on her face or in her eyes. Like, she doesn't even see Dean Stockwell at all. She did really good. That's awesome. Because a lot of times, even though he's not supposed to be there, people, like, might glance at him for a second or something. Mm -hmm. The only uh, weird thing in this episode, I think, is when Al's trying to warn Sam about Lionel shooting at him. One part, he says, Sam, get down. He's about to shoot. And then Lionel shoots. But before that, Lionel gives no indication that he's about to shoot. So I don't know how Al knew. He didn't cock the gun or anything. Is that something you do? (laughs) Nothing. That's weird. Yeah. So pretty much the actor playing Lionel was waiting for that line from Al to shoot the gun. Is it some kind of error? A little bit of an error. I don't know if it's a continuity error, but it's a it's a, somebody wasn't paying attention error. It's a take me out of the episode error. Is that a new thing? It is now. Okay, so everybody's safe and Lionel's arrested. He was the clapper, as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't know. It's weird that I that I thought that the mm. clapper is just another person that's irrelevant to this. You could be right. And Allison says, I had no idea I was turning Lionel on. Women don't really realize that they drive men crazy, do they? I think women dress more for women than anything else there's a lot of people that can become obsessed with a woman lionel was pretty obsessed yeah and he thought they were in love and delusional he was very delusional that would be a thing that comes up again in uh claudia christian's real life uh reading her book i found out that there was a guy who actually thought he was married to her and would keep showing up at her home like he lived there wow yeah that's a wackadoodle so life imitating art almost that's horrible so at the end they're both in trench coats and they kiss again big passionate lovey-dovey kiss it's a three shot and al's in the background watching him al would have done more if he had the opportunity (laughs) maybe that's another reason why sam doesn't really uh interact more with women because al could pop up at any time and he calls her angel like he is very endearing to her well he goes into full private detective mode towards the end enjoying his role oh yeah but what a fun role to play now that you know you're not dying yeah now that the pressure's (laughs) off 
And uh, going back to how we were saying Willie Garson was doing a really good job as Seymour after all that real shooting happens and the real life comes into his um, detective boy fantasies, he realizes that it's not all fun and games and people could actually get hurt. And he's like, I'm over this. I'm not into this anymore. Yeah, and he starts talking like a normal person. But just the look on his face and the feeling he had, I, I thought he did really great at that. Yeah, and maybe he will finish Nick's book. Ah, so maybe that's the book that Sam ends up reading. And we don't know if Sam read the mystery novel or not. Right. He could have read Seymour's book. And just forgot the ending. Right. Ah, which brings us back to the alternate timeline things we were talking about earlier. One will never know. I love when we learn things as we go from each other. We're smart and stuff. So he becomes a new pulp novelist. I looked up his name to see if he was a real pulp novelist, you know, like they did like with Buddy Holly or something, but I couldn't find anything on him. So he's just a novelist. They didn't write novels like they did for Richard Castle. Oh, that would have been cool. (laughs) There are Quantum Leap novels out. Yeah, that's the thing to do once you're not on the air anymore. But that was a good ending and it had a Casablanca ending. Yeah, I almost feel bad for Sam because he really wanted to get on the plane. But he leaped. Into a woman. Wow. It's going to be interesting next time. You're pretty convinced that Sam leaps into a woman, aren't you? Yeah. Maybe. We'll see. Well, he's in a bathtub too, so that's he gets he gets to see the the whole show right in the beginning. I didn't think of that. You really? You didn't think of that? <laughs> I knew it was going to be a woman as soon as it showed ba- a bubble bath. Season one's cliffhanger for going into season two was a teaser for What Price Gloria, which is the third episode of season two where Sam is a woman. So we don't even get to see the woman episode yet? Man, now I'm so disappointed. <laughs> so far, I've really been disappointed. I like all these little adventures we're going on. It doesn't get boring. That's- even as I tried to pay attention to what the lady was saying, my thoughts began to wander. Her words drifted away, and I concentrated on her ruby red lips and thought of all the different places I could install a digital subscriber line in the studio. As promised earlier, we have an interview with Claudia Christian. I'm totally jealous that you got to do this interview. She sounds like such a neat person to talk to. Uh, She was great to talk to. Preparing for the interview, I read her book, Babylon Confidential. Great book. I got it on Audible, unabridged version. Really good book. Did she read it on Audible? Yeah. She's the, she's the narrator. That's awesome when it, that happens. Because uh, she lived her life, so she can express it more in her words. That's why I chose the Audible version over the written version. How cool is it to have the author, especially someone who's a star, read you a book? It's like, okay, I'm from one of your favorite TV shows, and I'm going to sit down and talk to you for six hours about my life. It's like, awesome. And then I got to talk to her on the phone. How is that as an experience? It's amazing, and I hope to do it again and again, interviewing people from Quantum Leap. She told you a lot about the episode and about her life and, and all sorts of stuff in this interview, huh? Yeah. Let's play that interview now. All right. are very lucky today to have on the Quantum Leap podcast, Claudia Christian from the Quantum Leap episode, Play It Again, Seymour. She played Allison. Thank you for joining us so much. Thank you for taking the time to talk about Quantum Leap with us. Well, thank you for having me. I guess my first question would be, could you share with us a little bit about your experience filming Quantum Leap? Uh, Well, it was an awfully long time ago, but I do remember a couple of things that really stood out in my memory, which um, one of which was the costume designer, Jean-Pierre Dorliac, created some 
unbelievable outfits for me, including uh, one dress that I had to be sewn into. And I had never used a slant board before, but these were the um, apparatuses that women used to use in the films when they had very tight corsets or clothing that um, you just couldn't sit down in. So I, I had to actually lean up against one of those things because I couldn't sit in the dress that he made for me. He, he did finish. He actually sewed me into it. Um, his work was, was just just stunning, and um, that made a big impact on me because I saw how much effort he put into it. And you know, the, everybody on a crew works very hard, but that was just one particular thing that's, that stood out for me. Um, Scott Bakula, I remember being very, very uh, generous of spirit and... Uh, uh, very, very, very kind to his fellow actors, including me, who was just a guest lead, you know. And that impressed me as well, because a lot of times that, that's not the case with people who are basically carrying a show. But he was um, a, a lovely man, absolutely lovely. And it was it was, it was, was just a, a neat concept. It was sort of based on, um, I mean, there was a little bit of the Bogart, uh, you know, <laughs> thing in, with the hats and the... I don't know. It was it was it was very nice. It was sort of period, you know, uh, from that uh, Ingrid Bergman Bogart Casablanca kind of feeling. So I was just going to say a whole Casablanca feel. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It did. It, it you know that that shot with the trench coats and the hats and the it was neat. And and yet a lot of it, especially the stuff with Willie Garson, who I ended up um, meeting a number of times throughout the years. When we had to, we had to really talk sort of like 1930s, you know. <laughs> the dropping in Clapper was one of the last from that 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 I never forgot because it was so funny. Willie Garson coming out and saying that, you know, about um, somebody that we were chasing. So, it, it, altogether, it was a really it was a, a really fun show to work on. Is the dress you were talking about the one that was very revealing? The black sequiny kind of uh, dress. They they call it, they, they they said they wanted to go for a Jessica Rabbit look. The red hair and and uh, all that. <laughs> I think they succeeded. You you were very beautiful in that episode. Oh, thank you. You're so sweet. Oh, and uh, speaking of Willie Garson, yeah, his his dialogue in this episode was almost you couldn't even understand what he was saying. There were so many metaphors. Oh yeah, he all of the you know it's like those those expressions from the day. Great set of pins, great gams, you know. <laughs> it, it was a he was a cub reporter, you know. It was it was very cute, and I thought it was really really well done. I'm glad to hear you say that about Scott Bakula. You hear that a lot from different co-stars in their interviews uh, that they star with uh, Scott Bakula. They say he's a great guy, and you hear it from everybody. So it's good to hear it from you. Yeah, no, he's he's a really lovely man. Because I just finished reading your book, uh, Babylon Confidential, and uh, you tell the truth about a lot of your co-stars. <laughs> I do. <laughs> well, you know, if, if there's a fine line. There is no fine line, actually. There, you, if you're going to write a memoir and you're only in your 40s, then you have to be, there has to be a reason to write it. And in addition to that, you have to be completely honest. And if you're trying to come clean about something, I think you have to tell the good, the bad, and the ugly. Otherwise... I don't think people will buy it. I mean, it, buy it not in the sense of purchasing it, buy it in the sense of believing it. And, uh, you know, some of the tales that I told were told for entertainment and some were told simply to make a comment on this crazy business that I've been in for 30 years. I'm never going to look at Corbin Burnson the same again. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people will look at him the same way anymore. Um, but, uh, amazing book, amazing journey, Babylon Confidential. If, uh, any of our listeners haven't read it yet, I highly recommend it. Where in the book would, uh, your filming of Quantum Leap fit into that book? Timeline wise, uh, sorry. Oh, time wise. I think I, you know, I would have to look up the year of that episode. Um, 1989. Do you know the year offhand? 1989. 
1989. Well, um, let's see. I got my first series in 83 when I was 18, so I was only 24. Uh, so I was married when I did Quantum Leap. And, um, yeah, that would have me working quite a bit in television right then. I'd already done a couple of films, but I was working a lot in TV. I, and that was after I'd done a couple of series for NBC. Black's Magic. Black's Magic and Barringers, yeah. I watched a couple of Black's Magics last night because I had uh, read in the book that you were in those, and you played uh, Alexander Black's daughter. That's right, Hal Linden and Henry Morgan from M.A.S.H., from when I was a kid, I used to watch MASH, and he played my grandfather in that series, so it was neat. I guess Brandon Tartikoff, from, who was the president of NBC at the time, was a big Magic fan, and that's why they made that series. When I was a kid, I was a big Magic fan, and I, I watched it live, and it was nice to see you in it when I watched it again. Um, Thank you. Most listeners probably know you from Babylon 5, where you played Susan Ivanova. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's that's been probably had the most impact on my life, that, that job. Science fiction fans are the most loyal group of people I think I've ever encountered. Just wonderful. Um, it's been almost 20 years since I started on that show. And they now that it's showing from the very beginning again in the UK, I've got you know and a little group of young fans starting up again. And due to DVDs, there's, there's always a new generation discovering the show. And it's uh, it's really held up, you know. It's uh, yeah, the CGI looks uh, dated, but you know we were <laughs> we were the first sci-fi series to not use models to actually use CGI. I think, um, but I think the storyline and the characters and the writing really holds up. And I think um, Joe Straczynski created something eternal, and it touched a lot of people. I've met a lot of people through you know through the world thanks to Babylon Five. I've traveled the world and been able to meet people all over the place and it's uh it, it's always a continuing theme that this show touched many many lives and and i'm honored to have been part of it i i played a, a jewish bisexual russian telepathic commander at a time when there weren't really any jewish characters in space and there wasn't really a lot of bisexual characters being portrayed in a positive light so i think i think it it was it was a really good it was a good thing for me i've 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 actually made a lot of friendships through that show as well, uh, and they've lasted. It was a really good role that you had, and you portrayed it well. And I was lucky enough to watch the whole series like back to back. I bought the complete series and watched it from beginning to end, and I just fell in love with the series and your character. You're right about the CGI, but um, once you get into the storyline and the characters, you don't even see the CGI. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Kind of drifts off to the background when you see people like Andreas Katsoulis playing Jakar and then eating up the scenery, you kind of forget about the rest of it. <laughs> I loved reading all about Babylon 5 in your book, but as I got into your book, I realized you were in so many more things that I had seen than I hadn't realized. Yeah, I, I seem to have one of those one of those faces as well that it's funny because even today as in an office depot and somebody stopped me and said, I know you, you're famous, uh, you're in Desperate Housewives. And I thought, no, not in Desperate Housewives. But I said, no, but I've, I've been in a lot of stuff. You know, but it's always, it's always that. They, they, they recognize me, but they can't really pinpoint what it is. So uh, it's, it is because I've done a, a lot of stuff, about 50 films and hundreds of hours of television and um, in, a, in a broad range of characters. So I think it's, uh, it's, you know, it's easy to forget that I was in a lot of stuff. Could you tell us uh, the reason why you wrote Babylon Confidential? 
I wrote uh, Babylon Confidential mainly because I really wanted to help people. I wanted to share my experience uh, dealing with alcohol abuse, and I, I found something that worked for me after trying just about every traditional treatment that was available out there. Nothing worked for me, and I continued to binge drink for about five years, and it really affected my happiness and my health and my life, and I wanted to put an end to it. So when I found the Sinclair Method in 2009, I called the author of The Cure for Alcoholism, Dr. Roy Escapa, and I asked him what I could do for him because he is, thanks to his book based on Dr. David Sinclair's work, it essentially saved my life. And he said to me, well, you have a modicum of celebrity, so write a book. So I did. Um, and that was really the impetus for writing the book. I, I knew that it was cheeky of me to, and presumptuous of me to write a memoir of what, 45 years old or however I, old I was when I started it. Um, but I also knew that what the message that I had could potentially save lives. And here we are in 2013, and it has saved hundreds and hundreds and thousands of lives. Um, I myself personally have over 100 people on the Sinclair Method that I've put on it and uh, helped them through the process and the treatment, and I have a 100% success rate. In addition to that, I started a nonprofit organization called the C3 Foundation, which is www.c3foundation.org, and that... Um, is a place where people can get information for doctors and for their family and friends and loved ones. Anybody who's affected by alcoholism can go there for as much information as they need so that they can either start the Sinclair Method or approach their doctor or their therapist or psychiatrist. I want to eventually make naltrexone easier to get for people. I would like, in a perfect world, to have clinics, much, much like methadone clinics, available for alcoholics and their families to just get naltrexone and go on this treatment because it is the most successful long-term treatment for alcoholism in the world. It has an 80% success rate. And if you compare that to rehab or AA or moderation or any of these other methods, um, they have 90, 95% relapse rate and maybe a 5 to 10% success rate. So to me, this, 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 problem of alcoholism, which is costing America alone billions of dollars every year, it's also costing about 80,000 lives, not to mention the trickle-down effect of families being destroyed and lost days of work and accidents and medical bills. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's just it's ridiculous. It's one of the most costly diseases in the world right now. And in America, it's in the top three. And there is an easy, simple, effective FDA-approved pill you know, it's inexpensive and safe with very little side effects. Um, and nobody's ever died on the Sinclair method. Nobody's ever overdosed. Nobody's ever uh, gotten tremendously ill or anything. It's, it's incredibly safe. And, um, you know, I believe that this is the future of alcohol treatment. And I don't understand why it's not more utilized. I do understand it's because it's not financially uh, beneficial for anybody. Because the more you use the pill, the less you need the pill. So it's not a money-making thing, and it would put rehab out of business. So, uh, and that's a multi-billion-dollar business that doesn't work. So it's it's a it's a big struggle right now to fight up against those businesses. But I intend to do so. In fact, I'm going to be on Larry King on November 14th talking about the Sinclair method. And this, well, currently, I'm making a documentary about it, and I'm hoping that will reach more people. So that's really my goal right now. And once again, getting back to why I wrote the book, I wrote the book to help people. That's my joy now, is to help people with the same thing I went through. It's an amazing book, and I think it will help a lot more people as time goes on as well. I've never heard of the Sinclair Method before the book, but it seems like everybody should know about it that's struggling with alcoholism. 
I couldn't agree with you more. And I was shocked that when I went to rehab, nobody mentioned it to me. And I was shocked when I went to hypnotherapy and detox and all these places that nobody ever told me about the Sinclair method until I realized that the reason why they don't talk about it is because they don't want to lose their jobs. I mean, you know, 30000 to $60,000 for rehab, uh, three to $5,000 to medically detox. You don't need any of that with the Sinclair method. You can, I tell everyone it's true. I, I got cured for less than 50 bucks. I bought a used copy of Dr. Escapa's book, The Cure for Alcoholism, on Amazon, and I bought uh, 30 pills online. <laughs> and, I, and, and next thing you know, I had no interest in alcohol. My cravings were gone. My compulsiveness about it was gone. And now four years later, I maybe drink four times a year, six times a year. You know, holidays or my birthday, I'll have a couple of drinks, and that's it. I just take a pill and have a couple of drinks. Most of the time, I'm sober, and 40-something percent of the people on the Sinclair Method go completely abstinent. It's, um, it's really, it's miraculous, and, you know, when you get a phone call or email or take a Skype session with somebody and they say, wow, I've never known my mother. I got this from a 16-year-old girl. She called me and said, I, I've never known my mother my entire life because she was drinking, and now that she started the Sinclair Method a few months ago, it's the first time this kid's ever known her mom sober and ever really gotten to talk to her mom and to know who her mother was. And when I hear things like that, it just breaks my heart. And I think of all the children out there who are dealing with alcoholic parents and all the spouses who are dealing with an alcoholic spouse and all the parents of children of alcoholics, how desperately frustrated they feel and how helpless they feel. And here is this simple solution. You take a pill, an hour later you have a drink. Within a few months it causes pharmacological extinction and you no longer are an alcoholic. I mean, I believe that people think it's too good to be true. And, and you know, and I think a lot of people just don't understand the science behind it. I was lucky enough to be raised with a family of doctors and scientists, so the neurology, the neurological aspect of it is fascinating to me. And it makes sense. Extinction makes sense. It's been around forever. I mean, Pavlov, you know, look at that. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, uh, it just makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And uh, I have a few friends that I think would benefit from this book. Would it be appropriate? to give them copies of this book? Absolutely. And um, let's even take it a step further. They can, anybody, and I mean anybody, can reach me directly. I've made this, you know, I answer 50 to 100 emails a day. They can reach me at Claudia at BabylonConfidential.com. That comes directly to me. And I can help send them literature about the Sinclair Method. They can also go to that website, which is the C3Foundation.org. And three is spelled out, by the way. They can go there and also get information. Um, giving them a copy of Babylon Confidential helps or a copy of Roy Escapa's The Cure for Alcoholism, that helps. You know, for people who can't afford it, I also have PDFs available. Uh, you know, and that's all I want to do now is help people. So certainly, if you have friends, send them to me. Um, I can... I can also help them if they can't get a prescription from their doctor. I can send them to the proper places online to purchase naltrexone, which a lot of people have to do because doctors are are ambivalent at best and hesitant sometimes about prescribing it because either A, they're not educated about it, or B, they're not willing to do liver liver tests. Uh, C, they're, they just don't want to... I don't know. It, it's weird. I mean, it's such an innocuous, declassified prescription in some countries sell it over the counter so and you could more easily overdose on aspirin seriously that it just it boggles my mind when doctors refuse to prescribe it because quite frankly it's a it's a drug that can save your life so and you know they'll give you oxycontin or valium 
but they won't give you a, an opiate blocker. I mean, it's, 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 just, it's just staggering to me. I mean, there's things that you can buy over the counter that are far more dangerous than naltrexone or nalmaphene. Well, like you said, there's no money in it, and there's no money mm-hmm. in uh, curing something, only treating it. Well, that's just it. Is that, like I said, the more you take the pill, the less you need the pill. So, so you know, once you reach a point in your extinction where you're abstinent, you no longer need to take naltrexone or nalmaphene. So you stop taking it, so now the pharmaceutical companies and you know going to stop making money off that particular client. But I, I spoke to a company today, and it was very refreshing. Well, I told them the reality of the situation. I said, you know, if we, yes, potentially you'll have a client for life because some people will continue to drink within safe levels, and they will be the ones that will continue to take naltrexone for the rest of their life. And he said, well, we're actually a pharmaceutical company that cares about people getting better, so that doesn't matter to us. So that, that was the first time I've ever heard that, um, because when I called a rehab place uh, last year, and I said, why don't you use a Sinclair method? I wish I would have recorded this call because they said, well, why would we do that? It would put us out of business. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, do I wish I had that on tape. (laughs) They were were being honest. Yeah. Uh, It really does seem like a miracle drug, a miracle method that goes along with the drug, and uh, I'm so glad that you found out about this because your story might have ended a totally different way without it. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I definitely, uh, because I was a, a person that wasn't a consistent drinker, I was a binger, then when I did, well, I would have nine months of sobriety, and when I would fall off the wagon, it was getting progressively worse every time I would fall off. So, yeah, I could have been one of those people who had a grand mal seizure after trying to detox or something. Um, I know people who suffered horrible strokes. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it's a very frightening thing, and especially if you, if you don't understand addiction and you've never experienced addiction, it's a very frightening thing when it happens to you because you're just not in control of yourself. And I'm a, a very strong, disciplined person, and for me to be out of control was scary. It was really scary. And the nice thing about the Sinclair Method is it changes your brain back to the pre-alcoholic state. So you're no longer thinking about alcohol, which a lot of times when I was sober, just from pure white-knuckling it, I was obsessed with alcohol because I couldn't drink. So I was obsessed with the fact that I had to be sober. And with the Sinclair method, that goes away because it, it literally extinguishes the thought of alcohol or the compulsion. All of that is gone. So it's, it really is. A, a, it's a, I hate this expression, but I'm going to use it. So you're not, a, you're not a dry drunk, which a lot of people, even Bill W. died begging for whiskey. You know, um, they, they are always... A, always standing up and saying, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic, and they're always thinking about alcohol, and they're always talking about alcohol, and that just isn't a part of my life anymore. And that's, it's freedom. It's freedom from the chains of addiction and the chains of the thoughts of addictive behavior. So that's, that's the beautiful part. I, I wanted to be back to the person who I was before the addiction crept in, and that's exactly where I am today. And that's what makes this such a beautiful treatment. It doesn't just make you stop drinking. It makes you stop thinking about alcohol as well. It makes for a great ending to the book as well, because the whole time I was really worried for you, even though I knew you had written it, so you were okay, but I just wanted a good ending. Even for people that aren't suffering from addiction, your life was amazing. I mean, going to New York as a teenager and going on a date with Billy Idol. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's it's funny. You know, when it's your life, you don't think of it in those terms, but I, I had a girlfriend. I was in London with a friend of mine, and she turned to me, and she said, do you realize that you've had the most 
exotic life of any of my friends. And I thought, exotic life? And here, my, you know, sometimes I think my life is so pedestrian because I'm, I'm such a loner and I spend so much time reading and just being alone that I don't, I don't think of it as glamorous. But I do suppose that if you look at it on, on the whole, especially my 20s and 30s, it was, it was a good, fun ride. I mean, I definitely had some experiences that a lot of people don't have. And, and I had a lot of, uh, a lot of good fortune in my career um, by working steadily for 30 years and being able to live a decent life doing what I love. So I have been very, very blessed, and I, I, I understand that, and that's why I'm, I'm fully willing and desire to give back right now, and that's what I'm doing in everything that I do now, making the documentary, spending time with talking to alcoholics and their families all day, every day. Um, that's, that's really my way of, of giving back because I've been very, very blessed. My life has been good, despite that hiccup of having an alcohol addiction. I've had a very good life and I have a, a great family and friends around me. So I've got a good support system and a lot of people don't. A lot of people have nobody to turn to. So I hope that, you know, they can turn to me. On a personal note, just getting finished reading your book, how has your life been since you wrote the book? My life has actually gotten even better because I, I have something that makes me happier even than acting and acting is is very joyful for me but just this by writing the book and and coming into this world of of dealing with people and helping people I, I realized that this is actually more of my calling than anything else I had to go through hell in order to find my life's work and that's why when people say you know wow it's really you went through some horrible times my response is yes but I would do it over again and it was not easy believe me um being an alcoholic was the most difficult thing I've ever experienced in my life. It was a heinous, heinous disease or learned behavior or whatever you want to call it. it the experience of, of going through that was awful. I, I hurt people and I hurt myself and, I, and it, it was just awful. But like I said, I would do it again to be where I am right now because it's made me stronger. It's, it's solidified the relationships that were important in my life. I know exactly what I want and what I will and will not put up with. And I love helping people. So I'm in a really, really healthy relationship right now. I have a wonderful man in my life. I'm doing what I love to do. And I have great relationships with my family and friends because it's not clouded with addiction or uh, the histrionic behavior that goes along with being an addict. So my life is the best it's ever been right now. It really is. That makes me happy. Thank you. <laughs> um, very sweet of you. Thank you for all the entertainment you've given us over the years. And uh, can't wait to see more of it. In the future, uh, another quantum leap question, maybe just to end this conversation a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. Scott Bakula, is he a good kisser? Yeah, <laughs> you know it's funny. Um, I, I, there's only one person I really remember kissing in my entire 30 year career, and I remember it because it was so mind blowingly good. And and I, people always laugh when I say who it was, but because of his big mustache. But it was Sam Elliott. Uh-huh. And that's the only person I, I really remember kissing. Uh, I don't remember kissing Scott. I was probably nervous, and I was married at the time, so I was probably really super self-conscious, and I'm sure he was married. And, you know, those things are usually awkward at best. Um, but uh, I did see him jogging um, around Lake Hollywood a couple years ago, and it is, he's a very handsome man, <laughs> and he still is. <laughs> I would agree. I have a little man crush on him myself. I don't blame you. Scott Bakula is not only nice, but he's uh, he's a stud. He's a, uh, he he was shirtless. I have to say, I was impressed. Uh, <laughs>
<laughs> no, but he's lovely. But I do not remember that kiss. I should lie and probably say it was wonderful, but I, I don't remember it. People can get the book at BabylonConfidential.com, right? They can get uh, they can get a signed copy, and uh, that money goes towards uh, finishing up my documentary at BabylonConfidential.com, or they can um, they can buy it online. Uh, yeah, Amazon or any of those other um, online book stores, they can purchase it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much, and have your friends contact me. <laughs> okay, will do. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Miss Christian. Thank you. You have a wonderful night. You too. Bye. Okay, bye. Thanks again to Claudia Christian for uh, letting us interview her and talk to her a little bit about her experience with Quantum Leap. I can't believe she doesn't remember kissing Scott Bakula. I think I would remember that. I think I would remember that. But it's it's not a romantic thing. It's Yeah, on screen it's romantic, but in real life there's like 30 people watching you and you got to do it 18 times from different angles. I'm sure that takes a romance right out of it. We have some feedback. I asked our listeners if they had any thoughts on season one as a whole. And we got some responses. Marcus D'Ambrose said, I was once called crazy for finding pregnant women attractive. Then Sam broke it all down in the pilot when he fell for Peg. Their physical features changed to entice the male to stick around after the birth. I agree. I think pregnant women are very beautiful. Is he likening season one of Quantum Leap to pregnant women? That's really deep. (laughs) And Juan Morrow said, It's what got me hooked. Little did I know it only gets better. It does get a lot better. I mean, season one's good, but I mean, by season, the end of season two, season three, it's amazing. I can't wait because I like it now. Which is awesome. It only gets better. Peter Vuenesek says, They're definitely laying down some good groundwork for things to come. A few things change later, like Ziggy being called him or her. It gets better and better. Heather is in for a treat. The two-parters and trilogies are the best. I could not agree more. This show gets awesome. Peter, I hope you're going to follow along with me because I'm pretty excited and I have no idea what's coming up. I love that all the listeners, when they give feedback, they're very careful not to spoil you or other listeners that haven't watched the whole series yet. See, I thought that I spoiled myself. Well, there was another conversation going on that I was tagged in about Quantum Leap and I started reading and they're like, I love the one part where this and I'm like, oh my God, no, 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 no. (laughs) Exit. I don't want to read anymore. (laughs) Yeah, Spoilers are not good. Well, I mean... I used to be the kind of person who didn't care about spoilers, but it's such an experience to to watch it and not know, like, oh, yeah, the main character dies. Wonderful. Thank you. Especially when you can know in three seconds and you have to not look. Right. I'm, I'm not the kind of person who reads the last page of the book. Like, I, I, I like to enjoy it as it comes. It gets better. All right. And uh, Sarah Catherine Guest says... I thought that they did a lot for the short amount of episodes. They tackled a couple of serious issues like race and domestic violence, so you learned real quick that it wasn't all fluffy stuff. It amazes me with all the remakes that they have been doing and talking about that Quantum Leap is never mentioned. I would so totally watch. Or even a movie miniseries. Definitely lots of good things to come. I would totally watch any Quantum Leap reboot that they made. They're, they're going to run out of ideas soon. They've been talking about doing a Quantum Leap movie forever almost to the point now to where it's too late just because of uh, the actors involved. Well, what's funny is whenever I mention that we do a Quantum Leap podcast, I get I get like three responses. I get, is that show still on? <laughs> no. That, that, that's one. That's funny. The other one is, 
isn't that from the 80s like they they, they look at me very strangely or the third one is did they remake it <laughs> th- those are the yeah they okay. look at me like i'm crazy and they're like i think there's a lot of people out there that really love quantum leap and if they were to do a reboot or a movie or something people would watch see i had never heard of it but i was the kind of kid who played outside so i didn't really watch a lot of tv especially weekly television that i remember growing up i really didn't watch this kind of show when i was younger but when i mention it most people know what i'm talking about it's in the popular culture it really is andrew garber says it was uneven as the writers and producers found the different voices that they would use for the characters moving forward but it set a lot of good foundation for the characters and what the general idea would be for each week. Yeah, it's like an establishing season, you know, like you said earlier, there's no real rules yet. They're kind of getting their feet. Well, I think every show has the first couple seasons where they tell you all the backstories and they, they introduce all the characters. And this one doesn't have to do it as much because there's really only two reoccurring characters if you don't count Ziggy because we don't actually see. We, don't, we haven't seen him yet. Him, her. So really, they don't have to introduce any characters. Anybody we see in the episode is new. Unless it's an episode where he meets somebody or it involves someone that he knows, like the one where Donna is in college and then that whole episode. Then then they have to go back and do a little storyline. But I think that we, we've learned a lot about his sister, his, his ex, his life on the farm. I mean, every episode we learn a little bit more about Sam too, even if it's just a little bit on, on his personality. So... The further they get into how well we know Sam and Al, I think the the further that they can go with the storyline because you can't leap into a <laughs> you can't leap into a serious issue and not know how the character is supposed to react. Like now we know how Sam's going to react to things basically on how his personality has been so far. Like we knew that he wasn't going to leave Seymour to pick up his glasses. You know, things like that. We knew that, that Sam would be against the race thing and the color of truth. We, we knew that he would be against domestic violence. I mean, you expect certain things out of his character now, which I think is a, a main thing for, for a season of a show. I have no idea what's coming up. So I, I have no idea like how to summarize that or when that kind of ends. But in first seasons, especially with shows, it's all about introducing it and for the writers need to find their style. So I think it can only get better from here. I agree with everybody's comments so far. Season one of Quantum Leap is great, but I mean, it just gets better and better. You got a lot to look forward to, and I'm so excited for you to watch you go through this journey with me. And lastly, from Hayden McQueenie. In season one, it was clear that the writers of the show were going through teething troubles, trying to get their feet. The mechanics, rules, and running of the project will change and evolve over the course of the series. But the basic premise and heart of the show, which is to put right what once went wrong and try to make the world a better place, was constant and will remain constant throughout the series. The pilot set up a great foundation for the entire series, and some of the more lighthearted episodes, such as How the Test Was Won and Double Identity, were entertaining to watch. But I do feel that if it hadn't been for the more dramatic episodes, such as The Color of Truth and Kamikaze Kid, I don't feel that the show could have lasted much more than one season. Simply because it was these episodes which really nailed in the idea that Sam really can go anywhere, be put in any situation, and could keep you on the edge of your seat wondering if he'll get through it all right. I like the fact that in season one, it seemed like there were some mini missions which had to be completed in conjunction with the main mission before Sam could leap. These included helping Buddy Holly with the lyrics to Peggy Sue as Don Gino pulling out the right bingo ball or opening up Miss Melanie's mind enough to set an example to help integrate a biased town. 
It really did hammer home the idea that God works in mysterious ways. I also feel that this would later lead Sam to become more independent of the project and Ziggy and help him to rely more on his instincts, which are nearly always correct. So overall, season one was great and was enough of a catalyst to keep viewers watching and wanting to know more about Sam's adventures. I think Hayden summed it up great. If it wasn't for the big issues that they tackled, I don't think the show would have lasted that long because things wouldn't have really meant anything. When it gets into serious subjects and Sam really has to make things right and make people think about it, that's when the show is at its best, I think. And that's why we're doing this podcast. Thank you, Hayden. Uh, When I asked that question on Twitter, Cassie says... I'm crying. I watched that entire show. So I think she just finished Quantum Leap, and uh, she's crying. I cried at the end of Quantum Leap. We're not talking about the end. I don't want to know. I hope it's happy crying and not sad crying. It could be either. Hopefully happy crying. Right, but uh, of course you cry because there's no more episodes. (laughs) That happened almost with Eureka. You know, whatever the ending might be, which we won't get into, uh, I'm sure it'll be a ball of tears. I was, and I will be again. That's the beauty of it. There are many ways to leave feedback for us. You can go to quantumleappodcast.com. You can check us out on facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. We are on Twitter at quantumleappod. And you can always send us an email at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail at 707-847-6682. And we now have an Instagram account. Quantumleappodcast is our handle. I don't know if it is it called a hand. That's our username. So look us up at Quantum Leap Podcast on Instagram. And uh, if you have any Quantum Leap related posts, just tag us in it. That'd be great to see. Any way you can get to us, we want to hear from you. We'd like to take this time to welcome our newest member to the Quantum Leap Podcast crew, Juan. Juan will be doing research and transcribing. Thank you very much, Juan, for volunteering and joining the Quantum Leap Podcast crew. Gentlemen, welcome aboard. Come to join me, crew lad. Welcome aboard. Okay, uh, good evening, uh, and welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. Thank you, Juan, for all your help. So, back to our little questions. Okay, what does it mean, creased? Um, the bullet went by his face, grazed his face. I would say yes. Canary. Taxi. Very good. Hooker on Sunday morning. Is that like the walk of shame? I have no no idea on that one. (laughs) Extra set of peepers. Um, extra set of eyes. Bird roost. No idea. Airport. Oh, okay. Eyeball. Um, to watch someone? Yes. And, uh, peeping Tom her. To watch her or, yeah, keep an eye on her. Yeah, that comes up a lot. So I guess when you're a private investigator, you watch a lot. So a lot of lingo came up from that. Um, and as far as, uh, leaping within his own lifetime, this is actually before Sam is even born. How do they explain that one? Well, it's one of three or four times where this will happen throughout the series. And uh, the consensus online that I've read was, uh, he's alive, he's just not born yet. He's gestating. So he's alive, moving around in the womb. So technically, he can leap within his own lifetime, and he is alive, his heart's beating, and he's moving around. This is weird. I didn't even, like, I I didn't even think to look into it. No, because you think 53. You don't really look at the month and the day. Yeah, when was he born? August 8th. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, he's moving around in there trying to get out, Hmm. having the hiccups already a bunch of times. (laughs) That's what they do. So, and there's other times that he leaps outside of his own lifetime. So this is the one rule we know of, and uh, they haven't violated it yet technically, but I think it's coming. Which is weird because that's one of the rules that they established. 
like one of the only rules that are actually established so far. Rules are meant to be broken. I guess so. And uh, we found this out about the uh, curious leap out and the leap into what price glory. We got this from the Quantum Leap Wikia. The end of this episode featured a leap out into the events of What Price Gloria when originally aired. This episode had, in fact, already been shot. Hulu lists the episode as part of the first season and uses the code 0111 and was intended as the next year's season opener. However, Honeymoon Express was eventually aired as the second season premiere and Gloria was pushed back to the fourth episode of the season. In reruns on the USA Network and the Sci-Fi Channel, a new leap-in was manufactured from the end of Seymour to the beginning of the main action of Honeymoon Express. Ironically, Sam actually has a leap in between those two episodes as a fireman at the beginning of Express, but no leap-in footage was shot. So, our next episode will cover Honeymoon Express, because we're going to do them in original air date order. That makes sense. The only uh, weird little goof in the episode that we could find was uh, after Sam nearly falls down the elevator shaft, the scene fades and comes back in with Sam speaking to the landlord, Lionel, about the incident. The landlord brushes off Sam's hat with his hand and hands it to him. The brushing motion was played in reverse at first to extend the length of the action. That is something I didn't pick up on until I read about it. And then when I went back and watched it this last time, I was like, how did I miss that? And you don't really notice it because you're not really focusing on like certain things. But once you know, then you, then you know and you can't not see it. You will all notice it now. <laughs> yeah. So if you haven't seen it, go back and check it out and be like, wow, that's pretty cool. Next time on the Quantum Leap podcast, will Sam leap into a woman, a fireman perhaps, or will he be a cop on his honeymoon on his way to Niagara Falls? Al, I'm a newlywed. Can you believe it? And on my honeymoon. You lucky dog. Lucky? Al, that woman is a complete stranger to me. Aren't you at least going to kiss me goodbye? Oh, boy. What does Ziggy say? He says there's a 78.6% chance you're here to help Diane pass her bar exam. Uh-huh. You're not afraid of me? No. You should be. I'm going to kill you. Sam's going to be a cop on the Honeymoon Express, which is a train heading to Niagara Falls. And they call it that because most people going to Niagara Falls are on their honeymoon. I'm looking forward to it. I, I haven't seen a preview, so I have no idea what to expect. We're on to season two already. This is the end of season one. We did it. Can you believe it? That's awesome. Yeah. Luckily, it's a short season. I was going to say it's only nine episodes. It doesn't feel like it was that long. I thought it just didn't get picked up for a full season, but looking into it, I found out that Quantum Leap was actually a mid-season replacement, so that's why it was a shorter first season. Oh, that makes sense. Right. There was no writer strike or anything? Nope. Just uh, it's a mid-season replacement that uh, people seem to dig. Awesome. Like almost 25 years later, people are still into it. Like me. Exactly. My time with the lady who had walked in a little over an hour ago was coming to an end. I had to make my move soon or she... So, you know that I could hear your inner monologue the whole time, right? You could hear that? Yeah. Okay, um... See you next time on the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is Albie. And I'm Heather. Happy leaping. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. 
Go to quantumleappodcast.com to listen to new episodes. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal TV. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to get behind-the-scenes information, exclusive content, and to be notified first when a new episode is available. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, Baron Space Productions, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albi. The Quantum Leap Universe and all it contains is property of Belisarius Productions and Universal TV. No infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Baron Space production. But the basic premise and heart of the show, which is to put right what once went wrong, which is to put right what once went It's hard to say. As the two prepare to step into the elevator, the lift is absent and all that sits below is a long shaft. <laughs> Insert joke here. <laughs> so Sam, so Sam's still, hey, and a movie made it. I just said a thumbs up. I didn't type anything. It's okay. It was an emoji. Chase <laughs> Tansel should do. Her I I can pay attention more when I'm just typing emojis. Trust me. It's like clap on, clap off. The clapper pushing days. No stepping, crushing days. Cr- yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Please leave that in. It's got Bette Midler. <laughs> I said to myself, if I had to leap, I wouldn't mind leaping into a woman. That's. Doesn't sound right, sir. <laughs> sir, I think we've covered that in a previous episode. <laughs> Wait, it's got Bette Midler? <laughs> it's got Bette Midler. This is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I'm a better editor than interviewer, so it'll, it'll turn out okay. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs>